0: Hey everyone, Eric here. We're really excited about a new AI show from Turpentine called Autopilot, hosted by Will Summerlin. This podcast explores the adoption and rollout of AI in the industries that drive the economy and the dynamic tech founders bringing rapid scalable change to slow-moving industries. From law to hardware to aviation, Will interviews founders backed by Benchmark, Greylock, YC, and more to learn how they're automating at the frontiers in entrenched industries. Click on the link in the description to subscribe to Autopilot. Welcome back to Turpentine VC, a podcast where we discuss the art and science of building successful venture firms, VC to VC. For today's episode, we have Michael Dempsey. Michael is a managing partner at Compound, a thesis-driven, research-centric investment firm. We discuss thesis-driven versus founder-driven investing, Compound's AI thesis, company building opportunities, ways to win at venture, advice for emerging managers, and much more. Here's our conversation.
1: Mike, welcome to the podcast. Great to chat again. Likewise. Thanks for having me. One thing that's interesting to me about Compound is you guys have a very different approach than other VCs you guys have ideas about about startups, about about where markets are going, and you write about them publicly. And then you find other entrepreneurs who are interested in similar things and, and, and doing something that's very different from other VCs who just say, hey, we follow the founders, or we're totally founder-driven you know founder or, or, or more bottoms up. W- why don't you unpack your approach?
2: Yeah. I, so we call it thesis-driven research-centric investing. Um, I think what that means to us is uh, having a Kind of research first view on what are the categories we think are asymmetric uh, to the upside what are the categories that we uniquely understand and um, what are the technologies we think will matter and then as we get into those deeply um, from the academic side all the way to the more operational side we try and say how do we think value will accrue over long periods of time and so part of that is understanding the very early moments of these technologies whether that's like you know, early crypto, early AI, early robotics, things that we've really gotten there kind of at the the genesis of venture scale opportunities entering Um, and then exploiting those kind of understandings over multiple cycles as they mature. And so I think it's a much more kind of prescriptive view where we uh, aren't so arrogant that we think like we know everything, but we want to have a defined view that allows founders to either fit within our theses or shatter them. And so the vast majority of what we do fits across machine learning, robotics, bio, and crypto. And then 20% is some of these kind of adjacencies that are um, maybe not fully like post-science project yet, as we say, but are starting to become interesting enough that we know we should be following kind of the frontiers of them. Um, And I think a lot of this kind of then boils down to the next part, which is a lot of people kind of thinking, you know, this is all about frontier understanding, but... um, we really love the saying that if you want to understand how something works, study it when it's coming apart. And what that means for us is staying through these down cycles where it feels like there isn't progress, um, like crypto in 2019 or 2022, like AI in kind of 2018-ish and, and deep learning and kind of the reinforcement learning winter. And so um, we think that there's a lot of kind of um, value that comes out of just, just sticking around and understanding over long periods of time uh, what areas you have conviction in? And why?
1: Let's deep dive on, on on those categories exactly. You've been looking at AI for the, for the last you know decade plus it, plus it seems, and you you've invested in Runway and other other winners. What? Why don't you talk about how your thesis has changed from twenty fourteen to, to now?
2: Yeah, so I think early on it was kind of just about okay. There's these really interesting researchers who are winning things like ImageNet um, or other types of AI confer- uh, competitions and you started to say "Okay, there's a small number of people in the world who can do this. And so you wanted to back really talented teams, but you wanted to do it in a way that um, made it so that they were able to like commercialize this really like bleeding edge and hard to use technology. And so the saying back in like, I think 2017 was that like kind of canonical saying of like um, deep learning is uh, like sex in high school. Everybody's talking about it. Nobody's doing it. Right. And so you kind of move forward and you think, okay, what are uh, applications that can actually either accelerate the adoption of AI, what are uh, areas in which novel research needs to be done, and the companies that do that novel research will capture all the value from it because they can fully integrate a product. Um, And so we kind of looked at a bunch of those areas and said, okay, there's kind of non-consensus areas where new types of research needs to happen. Um, That would look like kind of Runway, which was doing creative AI in 2017, and people thought that was kind of crazy. That would look like Wave, which was taking a new approach in a more AI-first way to do self-driving cars, you know, post-cruise world and a post-Waymo world. Um, there's kind of the enabling side, which is in this middle area, like how do we enable more people to use automation, whether software or hardware, and there's a bunch of tools there. Um, and then there's a the last side, which are just like better products that um, use AI. And I think that better products part is pretty much what's changed now that you actually can hit an API, build a product wrap around it, or a wrapper, as people like to say, and um, and different companies that different, have different moats. And so I think now, if you look at AI, how things have changed is we kind of believe that there are no unassailable moats in AI. It's like a very scary place to be as an investor. Like there's no company that is not ever going to be unseated if they stop. Um, and that's rare, especially in the past decade of technology. We've had these like compounders of mega tech companies. And so we kind of think a lot of it today is understanding where your excellence is and kind of running at that, whether that's product um or like some form of like novel research that you have to do a layer deeper of. So an example of that is a company in our portfolio called Orbital Materials, which they have a lab that they actually are building a foundation model to do uh, material design and synthesis and then actually synthesizing those things in a lab to close the, the loop of kind of digital to real world. Um so it's those things, or it's just pace. And I think like the lesson from runway is a great one, which is like that team ships faster than maybe anyone in all of AI, and like how they survive and how they've one thus far, I think, is, um, as Chris likes to say, putting the maximum number of ideas into the world to figure out which ones are right. And in this time where it's very unclear what is right, uh, as terrifying as it is for me, I think that is probably a unique view that we uh, have kind of come to appreciate more and more in this um, very like highly competitive time of AI
1: fascinating and and so S- Sam lesson came on this podcast and he talked about why he's bearish on on AI from er, from an early stage venture perspective because he he believes that incumbents will capture m- m- most of the value um and that um a lot of the things he's seeing in AI are just w- wildly overpriced um where is he incorrect or or what is sort of your request for startups in AI like what, what, do, you, what do you you know want to be backing in, in AI at the moment
2: yeah, I mean I think he's I think he's right in the sense of like pricing is high, right? Like it's it's a crazy time to be investing in AI, valuations have gotten a little out of control, and that's just the nature of what happens in venture now. Um I think where things are interesting are in this in, in a few areas, right? There's there's a product side, which is just like how do you build a hyper opinionated product? I think the main thing that people kind of don't appreciate about AI today is everything feels kind of boring. Like it all feels like we get the text back from ChatGPT and it's very nicely formatted and worded, or it feels like uh, very sanitary and there's no like taste applied to it. So I think people can actually differentiate on that. And it's funny people don't have that viewpoint when like the prior decade of software was built around better design and like better product. Um, and then the second is this kind of like, how do you build in areas that require real world, uh, like a real world loop. And so that can be a bunch of different things in the sciences. It can be things in bio. Um, it can be things in robotics where you need to gather real world training data. Um, but I think all of those are kind of like, don't really matter to Sam's point, which is, yeah, there won't be a ton of winners, but there will be some, and that's like what venture capital is. It's like a power law driven thing. And also when you use like the market cap argument, um, uh, weirdly, going from like one and a half trillion to two and a half trillion in public markets isn't a lot easier than going from 100 million to a billion in private markets. So I kind of think it's just like a, um, it's a it, it just doesn't matter that viewpoint, to be honest. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Well, how about the second part of the question, which is like, say more about the types of opportunities or types of white space, like for founders listening, of you know, on AI, I want to do something there. Where, where should people be, you know, look, looking to build companies?
2: So I think like, I, this is a kind of boring answer, but like, I think like finance is like one of the most interesting opportunities, uh, mostly because the piping is really complex. And also, um, specifically, we... If we look at like analytics uh, across all sorts of industries, what we've seen is we've continued to advance the frontier of how people think about analyzing um, products, user cohorts, growth, whatever it is. We have advanced metrics now as these things have changed. Finance like that hasn't changed. That's because it's very hard to understand and do like novel types of scalable research. And so one of the things we've talked a lot about is like, could you build using LLMs like financial data querying that is more advanced so that I can easily understand like the correlation of two assets that are, um, historically never been thought of as correlated? Or could I understand across more specific uh, natural language characteristics, a stock screening principle? And I get to see anyone do that. I've had a bunch of people reply to me on Twitter being like, I did it. And it's like not actually that precise and there's a lot of missing data. But we think those types of areas are defensible because the actual backend of non-AI and like data gathering is, is really difficult. And then how you surface those insights from a product lens is also, um, has a lot of like white space that we think is like pretty pretty compelling. Um, and so that's like a a singular example. And then I think as you move into like areas like bio, there's almost like an infinite number of examples. You can look at things like, okay, across a clinical trial perspective, like what are the areas in which clinical trials fail or why? And we've had a bunch of people who hate AI for drug discovery now, because it hasn't actually related to faster times to, um, get drugs to market. But you can look at why do drugs fail in like an area we think is really exciting is toxicity, for example. And so could you build models that either one start to build some sort of computational understanding of toxicity based off of simulations? And then two, could you possibly build something that has more real human data in the loop? So we can start to understand some of these like currently ununderstandable things that happen when we do drug dosing or other types of um, kind of pharmaceutical development, uh, I'd say probably the last one where we're most interested in is like an intersection of this all, which is um, the robotic side, which is like, if you look at robotics over the past decade, it's been a mechanical engineering problem and it's now moving into a intelligence problem. Um, and that's really exciting because that means that you can now build products that are new and novel and have the ability to do really unique multifaceted things. And so we're looking for people actually on the product side and the design side who are more creative of if I if I hold automation as, as a constant, what are the more de- modalities and the two to three use cases that I think are super high value that I can build a purpose built robot for? Where before, basically for the past decade, it was expensive and you only could pick one use case that you wanted to target. Um, and so I think like all of these things kind of point to like the the original part, which is we think the creativity is like one of the biggest things that will unlock all of this new kind of like technology layer that is enabling AI. And that flows into a bunch of other ways in which people should think about how they build teams, how they build founding teams, and how they think about even building startups and like coming up with startup ideas.
1: Let's go deeper on that point, because that's something that we talked about off- offline, how you believe that for the first time ever, we are constrained by creativity and, and, and not technology. So why don't you unpack more about how, how that manifests and what that means?
2: Yeah. So I think if, you know, this happened at our annual meeting, we went back and we looked at like, okay, what are all these like macro trends that we've been following since the beginning of compound, basically. And a lot of them were charts around like all sorts of different kind of progressions of these technologies, whether it was industrial robot costs, increasing machine learning research papers, uh, genome sequencing costs, a bunch of other stuff. And what we kind of started to see was, okay, slowly these things have been building up for whatever eight years now um and i think now when we look at what are the ideas that people come with um rarely is it okay is this going to be uh does this have an outside chance of being possible anymore to do from a technological perspective and more it's um competitive dynamics how much risk are we willing to take what is the timing etc and so i kind of think if you were to look at all sorts of companies you are very hard pressed outside of maybe biology to find an idea that feels technologically impossible today. And I think that's a huge paradigm shift, right? Like everything before that we've always dreamed of in software has been like, oh, we would do this, but like, we don't have like intelligent enough AI. We don't have like enough compute. We don't have like data. We're not able to model this. Um, And so I, I think that, yeah, for the first time ever, it's really like, how do you think about building something that's truly novel? And I think that also gets to a lot of what other people are worried about in kind of broader vertical software, which is if you have a very obvious idea, you have a very um, maybe consensus view of product, then replicating that won't be that difficult in a world in which LLMs are very proficient at engineering and at coding. But if you have maybe a step outside the barrier of a kind of non consensus idea, you will have some sort of longer head start than the rest of the market in kind of new types of software, new types of Robotics companies, types of bio companies, whatever it is, crypto protocols, et cetera, that will allow you to have time to build some sort of moats early on. That potential, potentially can make it so that you have something that like truly compounds because you no longer have that like forty-eight month window where you have time to compound just because people aren't focusing on your problem. If everyone can focus on building something within twelve months and can raise capital within six months for that idea, and so we we are just really obsessed with this idea of like if you build founding teams. You have to build them with some sort of like founding team lens of being net more creative than the rest of the com- companies in your space. And then from a from a category perspective, we're kind of increasingly seeing like, okay, what are the interesting areas or what are the deficiencies where we want to see more ideas? And it's kind of like rate limited by that creativity. Um, and that's just like crazy to think about when, you know, I think that is literally the first time in all of technology where we don't have like a, oh yeah, this is impossible answer.
1: Yeah. And I'm curious what are the implications of that? Like should there be many more founders or should there be like more capital? There's already a lot of capital. Um like, <laughs> will, like will there just be bigger outcomes or or like because or, or, that that was the A6Z thesis where yeah. they justified yeah adding so much more capital as they said well the outcomes will just be so much bigger and just continue to to increase and it's unclear if if that's going to play out but
2: Yeah, it's I don't I think it can go two ways, right? It could be there will be more there will be larger outcomes. There could be There will be um, larger uh, disruption versus enablement on the technology side. People will think of like net new ways to do old things that are better from a technological perspective and like maybe higher margin, whatever it is. Um, So you'll see kind of just like a full disruption instead of like a swallowing of technology taking in other industries. It could be like a flattening of the power law a little bit. Like there are a variety of products that will be built that will enable... Um, value to be captured, but, but maybe it's not as like asymmetrically skewed because um, to the point of like personality, different people will want kind of like thirty percent different versions of products. I think the main thing is there's like a, a controversial stance, which is you potentially move like the um, for the past five years, the meme has kind of been like you know product managers are like these pointless people, right? Like pointless managers and like this this job and this like hate on on this role, um, and you you might morph that role into actually more of a creative-leaning role that fits somewhere between product and design. Um, And those might actually be the new most important people in the org across more orgs, right? Like Snap, obviously, has always had a design-centric organization. Their view is always innovating on UI and UX. Um, It's possible that if you actually relax the constraint of engineering and creativity is the core thing that you're pushing on, those type of people might be... Viewed as the most important people in the organization, at way more things than like consumer social networks, where most of the usage is deemed from like these dark patterns that are created from UI and UX. And so that's like pretty, pretty interesting from a team composition perspective, where you don't need to staff up, you know, 40 to 90% of your staff as ENG. You might staff it quite differently. Um, And I think also, as you look at some of the areas we spend time in, which are like net, quite technical, and quite science driven, you will need teams that are more of a blend of engineering slash research and science and like product design and organization. I think like all of those things are like very, uh, very interesting to think about because those, those sides of the market usually don't talk to each other very much. And so people who are good at sitting at the intersection of those communities and companies that are good at capturing the intersection of those types of people might have like a far larger advantage than we previously anticipated.
0: Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. Over 100 startups launched today. Do you know who they are? If you're not seeing interesting startups, none of your downstream processes matter. How you source deals at the earliest stages could be your most consequential investment. Harmonic is the most complete startup database, finding new companies as soon as they incorporate and tracking them through IPO. You can create a search tailored to your investment thesis. In one search, filter over company data, including venture stage, industry, and geography founders and operators' backgrounds and traction metrics like headcount changes, social media audience, and web traffic growth. Importantly, Harmonic instantly surfaces warm connections to help you connect with founders. The results are delivered on autopilot, wherever you most need them, over Slack, email, or via API, directly into your CRM, integrating seamlessly into your software stack. Learn why Craft, Bedrock, NEA, and hundreds more trust Harmonic's data by visiting harmonic.ai, or use the link in the description. Make sure you mention our podcast, Turpentine VC, during your demo.
1: Let's segue to the other um, category you mentioned, which is crypto. You guys have invested through, you know, multiple bull markets, multiple bear markets. Why don't you trace how your how you've approached the the, this, the category and talk about how you're thinking about it now in 2024?
2: Yeah, um, so I think crypto has been always built around the idea that we saw like some fundamental shifts in like. Uh, societal societal, and economic shifts, basically. And we thought that crypto was like a, a very interesting answer to those. And so we started investing in crypto in 2016 and at that time it was kind of part of that 20% I talked about of areas that we thought were early but interesting and so we should be involved and we should be reading a lot of the research in and we should be making investments in. And so we invested across a bunch of different protocols from the infrastructure side all the way up to like the application layer side. Um, and I think what we generally thought then was like infrastructure was going to be needed to be invested in, in order to drive application layer. like very obvious thought. Um, and obviously we saw that cycle got out of hand 2018, we continue to invest 2019 continued fit to invest 2020, and 2021, um, actually slowed down our cadence a little bit because the market quite quickly got pretty crazy. Um, and I think what we were waiting to see was, was the infrastructure starting to enable, uh, you know, new types of use cases, new types of products, and new types of builders. Um, and so now as we kind of look at the, the space in 2022, so we've been investing heavier and kind of through this year, um, I think thing we're looking for more is like middleware and, inf- and application layer investments. And I'd say for us, it's really exciting because we think that actually similar to the prior thing on creativity, like crypto has actually all of its tools it needs to build interesting products. Um, it just is lacking maybe um focus and again creativity but we also are a little bit disheartened because people continue to just back more and more infrastructure and they do that because it's like the most it's the highest expected value thing to do you build like a new L1 you build an L2 you build some sort of infrastructure you launch a token those tokens get valued at billions of dollars 2 to 4 years of unlocks of that token Worst case, if the thing really nukes, you're still at like 500 million, 800 million, fully diluted, whatever it is, um, where if you build an application, you kind of, maybe you launch, maybe you launch your token, it's at, you know, hundreds of millions, 2 billion, and then it just kind of bleeds down. And so from an expected value perspective, if both of them have minimal usage, you should just do the other thing and make much more money, be far more successful. Um, so we think that needs to shift in order to like truly have like net new use cases. But I would say relative to even a year ago, when a year ago we were kind of looking and saying there's a world in which regulatory just totally destroys a lot of like the views we have in the space from like decentralized physical infrastructure or decentralized finance manifesting in the U S um, we feel much better about it now. And candidly, that's like the work that our peers have done either at other funds as well as like obviously Coinbase being you know one of the most important companies in the space. So I'd say now we are looking at like those two kind of categories of applications. And then what I would call like weirder middleware that we can't envision what the, ultimate like products are but we think are interesting building blocks so an example of that is sarcophagus in our portfolio which is a decentralized dead man switch protocol so basically there's a bunch of things you can do from like estate planning and other uh other types of like um uh survivalist uh, types of passing on of information in a fully trustless way and so we think that's like a really interesting block that then people can build on top of and we're looking for more and more things like that
1: yeah, well said. And, and by the time this podcast comes out, your your piece on uh, crypto doesn't have user problem will, uh, will will be out. So, is there anything else you want to say from that from 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 that idea that that's worth sharing?
2: I just think like my high level view is that I think crypto has a great tribalism that we all feel because everyone takes a chance to like make fun of the space whenever they can, and also like hates it when it does well um, financially. Um, but I think that. On the downside, like we can, we can enjoy the upside of those things, but I think we just have to be realistic on the downside, which is it isn't then fair to be building within crypto and say, you know, it's because the the speculation is the only use case or the users are only wanting to speculate. So I can't build anything else, um, as a reason why things fail. And why I think that is, is because like you either have to then build a project protocol company built on speculation or you have to build with a view of, I'm going to build something that is so great that new people come to build or to use crypto um, for my application. And I think there's a little bit of a lack of uh, accountability in like the broader community that we haven't built enough very interesting things. And I think like I think of Helium as a good example where it's like they have a twenty dollar a month cell phone plan now. It's like pretty incredible. I mean, it's like a really tangible use case that different people will want. They're going to continue to add users. And so we need more things that target different type of areas like that. Um, and yeah, I just think the excuses need to like stop at this point, but it's easy for me to say, I'm like a, I am a VC, I get to sit and, you know, not have to actually do any real hard work. But I do think that it's net beneficial for everyone if we just remove that view of speculation being the only use case um, sooner rather than later.
1: Yeah, there, there's this idea that in, in venture, the way to win is to be contrarian and and right. Uh, but then there are also all these people who are following these uh, these trends as they as they emerge. You know, we talk about AI, crypto. You know, there there are others, and um, sometimes they make money. A lot of times they they lose money. But I'm I'm curious about this broader idea around sort of uh contrarianism versus versus consensus but just winning like stripe and this i i believe that their seed round was at like 100 or something crazy high and sequoia did it and it was a obvious you know a brilliant founder and um you know and sam altman and open ai you know maybe there's some weird things about it but it, it's sam altman right it's not this sort of you know it, it was a thing that people we were going to be successful and was very competitive and so i'm curious you know i know you're more in the contrarian camp than the consensus but just got to win it better better camp but what's your perspective on um, is it just two different ways of, of winning venture or is it like you no know, actually the contrarian and right is, is going to win more and that that's the, the people who are truly great and who truly produce out, outsized returns but then at the same time yeah I don't, I don't know if yc is contrarian right they're just like playing this like mass game and get special economics so h- how do you think about it when you think about like ways to win adventure
2: yeah i think i mean i think it comes down to like what are your structural advantages right and like i think um I think YCA is a good example. YCA has a structural advantage on the space. They invest at prices that no one else can, and then they get someone else to market up almost immediately, and they do that at larger and larger scale. Um, I think other companies have structural advantages because they have really strong brand network effects. Um, Sequoia is a good example of that. And they can play maybe a more consensus game because their advantage is they have more capital. Um, and to be honest, like a lot of these firms... like there isn't as much downside to being very wrong. Um, and what that means is they can lose a ton of money and it still won't really matter because they've made so much money in the past. Um, I think for us, we think about where are our structure advantage, structural advantages. One, I think we have what we think is like a differentiated approach. And two, we think we have um, a unique understanding in the areas we spend time in, the types of businesses we invest in. And so similar to me being like, you know, I tell people, I use this example all the time, which is I have very low credibility as to why I should be investing in a marketplace business if Bill Gurley is like going up against me. It's kind of a dated example now, but back then. And so I think similarly, like, they're just you have to figure out what your advantages are. I do think this idea that there's a lot of backward looking examples like Stripe is a good one um, and, and, and there's others. Uh, I think that those get worse and worse over time because there's so much more capital now uh that the like 100 post round now is 500, right? Like the, these, these prices get so much, so much higher. And I think the other thing too, is that if you hold it constant that we're not in like Zerp, um, I do think you have to think about like terminal exit multiples for these businesses. And so it's great if you can back like the next incredible business at 500 mil posts at seed, because the founders are awesome. But like, If we assume all businesses trade at a terminal multiple of like eight to 10 times revenue in a very simplistic model of the world, it has to be a massive company. And there's like sub 70 of those businesses or something. So I I think it's just different business models. It's also why like for compound, we just enjoy being small as a firm because we get to just focus on the things that we think are uniquely interesting. And we don't have to worry about $10 billion outcome versus like one to five. We are quite happy. Um, but yeah, venture is just perpetually understanding there's like a million things that will bother you. And there's also a million ways in which this job can be done well, um, and even more in which it can be done not well. So I've become way more like laissez-faire about it um, in terms of how other people behave over the past few years.
1: Yeah. But but you do have this belief that 2019 to 2021 rewarded scope creep and 2022 to 2025 will reward focus. Is Is that... Largely based on the macro. If, if the macro were to change in a certain way, would that ch- you know, change your sentiment, or, or, or say more about wh- why that's the, the case?
2: I think I think there's like a bunch of different things. So I think one of the things, um, some of it was macro, which was that companies basically were allowed to come up and uh, say, "Okay, I need to raise money in six months. How should I think about spinning around like my story so that?" You know, I can pop back up in three months and then have a new narrative that works. And investors get really excited. And so what that meant is that you needed to say, okay, I can do this thing. And then I can also do four other things that are going to be valuable. And the like canonical example of this was uh, Uber, which was like originally on end, former boss of mine who runs CV Insights, um, called it a Ponzi scheme of ambition. Um, and Uber was really interesting because Uber basically out-fundraised Lyft by using this strategy of saying. We like have rideshare, and then we have you know, food delivery, and then we have scooters, then we have Uber Elevate, if you remember, which was like flying vehicles for delivery. And then it was, we have ATG, it was self-driving cars. And then like Uber reached a point where it was about to go public, and it realized it wasn't profitable. And a bunch of these things looked horrible to more traditional investors that weren't only narrative driven, and started divesting them and divesting them. And we were still in public, still like cratered in uh, stock price after the kind of COVID peak, and now has gone to become like its first profitable quarter, I think a quarter or two ago, and it's at around all-time highs now. Um and so I think like you can quantitatively see that you no longer are going to be able to play this like continual scope creep game without having some fundamentally strong scaled product market fit on the initial idea. Um I still think you have people like Sam Altman who like can build these kind of like kingdoms of of uh, products around them. Um, but even Sam, interestingly enough, is now doing it across multiple companies, right? Like we recently in the news has been him. He's raising money to do like chip manufacturing. But there's a world in which like if this was five or six years ago, Sam might be doing that within OpenAI and saying like, "Hey, OpenAI is like a frontier model developer and also makes the chips." And so I think that we're all just starting to see that from like a higher level tech landscape. And I think if you kind of filter that down, a lot of us were kind of coming up in our careers over this past decade. And we were doing it either as like younger people in tech, or we were doing it as um, other people older than you and I, who were making all of their money in their careers over this past period of time. And I think that it became really hard to take away any lessons besides like, I need to be continually pushing the envelope of everything I do. I can't have like a core competency or core focus. Um, and I think we've seen, we saw that in founders who, you know, were like angel investing, raising, raising uh, really large rounds, um, launching different products, like doing a bunch of different things. And it all kind of came crashing down. And I think that like that culturally, I'm not sure we've fully gotten away from, but maybe that's like the last domino to fall, which is as more and more people start to kind of, um, shut down their companies in the next twelve to twenty four months, which I think we've all been waiting for, um, we might feel some sort of like recognition of like, okay, turns out like this thing is really hard and you can only focus on so many things and do so many things well. I don't know. So that, that's like my high level view on scope creep.
1: <laughs> and, and and more to that you, you have this belief that venture isn't broken, contrary to, you know, what some people are saying, people have just been act you know, acting impatient.
2: Yeah. And we yeah, need to I mean- get impatient. Yeah, I think like I, again Sam like Sam lessons a great example. He's like a very thoughtful guy, but like all you, know, you can't really complain about like venture so much. Like what we do is we back people taking the most risk of anyone in any part of the capital stack in human history. And we do it over and over again and we should be right 2 out of 30 times every 3 to 4 years. And like if you do that well, then like it's not broken, it works. It keeps working. I think people just perpetually want to do the bigger and next thing, um, without like proving they're, they're good or, or great at the initial thing. Um, and so I, I, yeah, I'm totally, I look at that and I look at that narrative and then I look at this conversation we're having around like creativity and like not really being technologically constrained ever. And I just think it's like insane that these, that these two conversations are happening at the same time, um, because it's, it's more of just like a, a healthy reset or a healthy kind of like, disinflation of a bubble that we've had it's not like some structural thing is broken like just don't raise four billion dollars and like eat a bunch of money in 18 months like it's not like this isn't complex none of this is complex we all know how to not do these things we just can't help ourselves
1: yeah it's it's funny because going back to crypto and ai both of those technologies it was rumored or it was it was claimed would disrupt something about venture right like Crypto Remember with the ICOs and there was this, you know, kind of novel way of raising money um, and, you know, it was like crypto would just be different. Like it was it was the end of venture capital or or something. And and similarly with with AI, there's, you know, like uh, maybe the technology itself would be used to replace humans in in the process of of evaluating companies. And I have a friend who raised a bunch of money to to try to do exactly that. Um, And so. It seems like, uh, you know, rumors of the death of EZ have been greatly exaggerated, at least from from those technologies. And it it just feels like it's going to be what what it used to be, Um, even though people have been talking about, hey you know, venture capital hasn't changed for, for decades and yet it erupts, it, it invests in industries that it fundamentally, you know, the entrepreneurs fundamentally disrupt, but VC itself hasn't been fundamentally dis- disrupted. Is, is, is that what you think just is a the case, there's just something about venture that makes it a cottage industry that is, uh you know, unlikely to have the same change um, as the industries it, uh, it invests in.
2: I just think, I just think it progresses, right. It progresses from, um a hyper cottage industry uh, to a slightly more institutionalized one to now like a bifurcating one where you're either a Goldman Sachs of uh venture a la Andreessen or you're a small boutique firm like a compound or like a USV or something like that. And the middle definitely like that's like the progression is those middle firms potentially get destroyed in some way or they die out or whatever. Um, I also think that like, It also progresses in, uh, maybe for the first time ever, starting to progress more and more in terms of like the market participants, which is we kind of had like 20 years of the same people largely controlling venture. Um, and I think now we're starting to have like a lot of new people. And so you'll have a lot of new ideas, but I kind of think of it like, uh, when you join a company, like we all have friends where we, they join a startup and the first two things that they, say are like, this company is a total disaster because all startups kind of are in the middle. And then the second thing they say is, I have a bunch of ideas of how I can fix this thing. And I think when you have a huge inflow of new investors who are um, maybe less students of like the history of the asset class and more um, uh, aficionados of the asset class today, you start to get a lot of really low signal, high noise ideas floating around. And when a ton of capital flows in, uh unlike in a startup where the CEO will say, Cool, this is a idea. We've thought about this. You're gonna have a bunch of people who say, like, cool, try it, and like give you money. <laughs> and so and they give a bunch of people money to do a bunch of things. And so I think like some good ideas will come. Like I think the idea of like talent investing and pairing founders and incubation, like those things are interesting ideas with experiments that will take iterations to get better. Um and I think like you know, quantitative driven only investing and like Whatever Tiger was doing for a few years, like those were interesting ideas that were not good, and they were done at such a scale that normally that wouldn't happen. In the same way that if you joined as you know an IC at a startup, they wouldn't say, "Cool, here's like a new product, go launch it." Um, so yeah, I think I think it's about progression. I think people are too quickly to want to disrupt this industry that is like very weird and like not optimized and feels kind of stupid when you look at it. Um, and then as you do it more and more, you're just like, it's like, that's the beauty of it. And that's like the, that's the, the magic of, of uh, kind of what tech as an industry has, which is like, it makes no sense that people are able to raise a lot of money off of an idea. Um, and that we value people who like drop out of college more than we value ones who finish college, like all these types of like nuances, but it's also like the awesome part of like, it's an industry built on optimism, um, and taking tons of risk. And we all are like, okay, with people losing money. Um, so yeah, I, I think, I think it's just a progression. We shouldn't think about it as like full disruption. Yeah. And, and one
1: also interesting incentive problem that you, you wrote about is this, and you sort of alluded to it when you talked about, Hey, these, you know, these companies are going to go out of business, these sort of zombie companies that exist is one challenge that they have is that their VCs are, are relying on those markups and they don't want to mark them down. Because that will that will affect their numbers, and so it's it's these and the LPS are sometimes also incentivized by the markup. So it is this weird like chain where they're they're all incentivized to keep to flip, you know keep up these zombie companies.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's 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 tough, and it, and it makes it really hard too. Because if you're a founder, you're getting advice that is you expect to be done as like a fiduciary to your company, and it's not. Um, and so like I think that is really difficult. And I think right now a lot of founders are kind of looking around. And understandably are like pissed at VCs and they're annoyed because they got bad advice. They're annoyed because, um, they are being abandoned. Uh, and I think lastly, the worst part is they've been told like for, for two years now, they've been told like, Hey, if you do X, I will behave, uh, in, in form of Y, which is like, if you hit this revenue, you can get funded. If you do this, you can do this. Um, and then they're coming back and they're like, Hey, I did X. And the VCs are like, whoops, uh, never mind. Sorry. I don't believe that anymore. Um, and so it's, it's really complex time. And honestly, there's not a, a great answer for it. And I think like, it's probably going to be a really large, uh, just like a good learning moment for a bunch of people. And it sucks because that like this fun learning moment we're all having results in a lot of people losing their jobs, a lot of people losing people, money, et cetera. But, um, yeah, I just, I always go back to like, investing was, is like not supposed to be easy and like never was. And it's like an incredible privilege to manage large pools of capital for people. And so like... Somewhere in 2020, 2021, it felt like we all felt it was easy. And um, I'm glad people are now kind of like looking up and they're like catching their breath a little bit and like feeling it's very difficult.
1: Yeah, totally. Speaking of of, of, of difficult, I want to segue into bio. You know, we talk about AI, we talked about crypto. You've also thought about bio for for quite a long time. Why don't you uh, briefly trace your your evolution as to how you guys have approached the the space as a, as a fund and, and some you know some ideas on where you're excited today.
2: Yeah, so I think I think in on bio, like one of the things that we kind of originally thought about was like a lot of people in like 2014, 15, 16 was just like the digitization of healthcare. Um, and I think what that showed us was that there was a lot of really interesting ways in which technology was giving scale to kind of traditional providers and also maybe bringing in novel care models. Um, and so. We, we backed a company called TIA, which is kind of a healthcare for millennial women company, um, and now kind of all all clinical healthcare for women. Um, and what we saw there was just like a novel care model, which, which is technology-enabled, enabled people to get better quality care. Um, I think what we saw over the next few years really was that many other digital-only services didn't really result in better care. And for us, I think we are largely interested in like... Um, non-incremental improvements and that shifted a lot of our focus towards what was happening at the early stages of biology and what is now called tech bio and why it was interesting to us is because it took all of the um kind of technologies that underpinned the things we liked like robotics and machine learning and brought them into these biological systems Um, and so we backed a company uh, called juvenile on the therapeutic side very early on Uh, we backed a few others as well Um, and we kind of just saw how these started to develop and how more and more these became product platforms and uh, all the things that now people talk about, which is you have more shots on goal, you have more sophisticated and tighter feedback loops, and theoretically you should have much more success. And that's kind of the next generation that we're getting to. And so now when we look at bio, we have this framing of like, there are a large number of N of one companies and there are a large number of copycat companies and, um, or maybe crowded spaces, copycat's not the right word. And so we kind of are looking at what are like novel, creative ways in which people can build new types of biological products. And that's like some pharma, some consumer products. So an area we're really obsessed with, um, which is led by Shelby on our team, has been like science-driven consumer. And a lot of that is built around the idea that there is new novel science going into consumer products for maybe like real science, maybe the first time ever. And that enables a bunch of business dynamics that we're really excited about Um, from retention to margin to a bunch of other things. And then all the way on the other end, we have uh, more kind of just out there, people that we think are building incredible things that maybe are less consensus, but we've started to understand more from like a robotics angle, which is like BioNaut, where it's a nanomedicine robot. You inject it, you use a magnetic system to steer it, to deliver drugs very precisely. And we think that can enable um, people to get significantly better outcomes from lower dosages of drugs and just any sort of drugs in general. Um, and for that, that the core underpinning of that was like robotics. And so I think for us, we feel more and more comfortable with taking pure play of regulatory risk, but where we think we are uniquely suited as a firm is that intersection of novel technology entering its way into biological systems and a bunch of different kind of random areas um, that we've talked about um, publicly there. And I recommend anyone follow Shelby's newsletter. She writes a ton about this stuff on our team and really helps kind of push through a bunch of, a bunch of those ideas.
1: One horizontal thesis you, you've had for, for a while is, is the future of family planning. Can, can you say more about wh- wh- what's excited you there or what, uh, opportunities, you know, uh, could, uh, could emerge in terms of what you might back?
2: Yeah. Um, I think for that, that's like, that started in, yeah, 2015 maybe. And, um, Tia was an example of an investment just because women's health is like a natural feed into there. people don't build relationships uh, with their doctors often until they start to think about uh, having a child uh, on the women's health side. We backed, um, Conception, which is Matt Christoph's company, which is doing uh, embryosynthesis using stem cells. Um, and we've backed a few other companies that have uh, been acquired and or are still stealth today. I think for us, like the, the main thing is today, we think it's very clear that there are a bunch of uh, structural uh, care models that could be innovated on the family planning side, and that's on the fertility side, the IVF side, etc., those are a little harder to invest in now, and then maybe a few years from now, there will be some of these areas that um, fundamentally shift how people think about family planning. Whether that's on how people think about male fertility and some of the stuff like ContraLine is a very well-known company in this space. We're not investors in, but it's like a, a male birth control company. Um, all the way to some of the people who are doing research around um, artificial wombs and kind of removing some of the uh, physical burden for people who either aren't able to have uh, carry a child or, for whatever reason, elect like to not to. Um, so, I think most of these, most of that space likely from us will come from really science driven innovations. But um, I think it's been really incredible to see when we back Tia, yeah, women's health and family planning wasn't a thing, like wasn't an investable category really. And over the past whatever eight years, it's become um, maybe one of the most important and at least like hilariously enough, like nerd sniped categories in Silicon Valley healthcare because some people. I think you're starting to like want kids who so like kind of don't want to make some of the trade-offs of uh on the biological side. So it's interesting, um, but it's also super delicate. And so we're yeah, we're continually looking at the space, but we haven't made an investment in the past couple of years.
1: Yeah, another example of uh of sort of overcoming the health stuff is the the delaying menopause.
2: Yeah. I mean I think I think all yeah, all of these things are we think a lot about longevity um as like an industry, right? We think a lot about longevity in two forms. We think about it as living longer. And we think a lot about it as having more years to your life or life to your years rather than years to your life. What we don't really think about are the implications of those things. Um, And so if you have various like biological clocks um, across a bunch of things, sometimes having children, sometimes, you know, movement, et cetera, um, mental, biological clocks as well. Uh, you actually have to start thinking about how do you make sure that you're optimizing the life in your years, in our view, more than the years in your life. So it's great that people are trying to figure out how do we live forever. And I think Brian Johnson is like one of the best things that has ever happened to the world because this guy is spending millions of dollars trying to run a bunch of experiments that probably people would forbid him from doing. But um, a lot of these other areas are, are built around that life in your years thing. And I think people will fundamentally shift how they think about what stages of their life they are in, um, as we start to have like cohorts people that on average live to whatever 110, 120, one ten one twenty one thirty, um, but I think these things are becoming a little bit more consensus, which is good because more people will start to build in them
0: How do you think about
1: technical risk more broadly? We've talked about some some deeply technical spaces you guys you know have been in, in investing in them for a long time. How do you think about trying to avoid not being too early? I did not think, what kind of, what level of technical risk are you comfortable taking? How do you approach that?
2: Yeah, I so a core belief we have is like you in 2024 in venture and technology, in which we have the most innovative and there's a, there was a tweet the other day about how the like five big tech companies spend on average um, the same amount as the Manhattan Project in R and D um, per year or something. I don't remember what it was, but and so. We have the most innovative companies in maybe history in terms of incumbents. And so we believe you have to be too early in order to like get to any category and have proper value capture. And so we're pretty okay thinking through what are the time arbitrage between what people think is properly early or proper timing versus what is too early. And I think some of that comes down to um, the fact that we believe kind of like the canonical, like people underestimate decade, overestimate a year type shifts but also, I think if you start to look at the rate at which areas are going from academia or pure play research into commercialization, it's so much faster than even a decade ago. And that's across like every modality, right? It's across... The only thing, again, is bio, and that's because it's regulatorily limited. And even then, there's like a really interesting thing that I would urge everyone who's inter- interested in this to look at, which is um, Montana has something called the right to try law, I think is what it's called. Don't quote call me on that, but it was just passed, um, which basically means that... Any drug that is in clinical trial at any phase, you now as a normal citizen can go and do and take in Montana on your own. Um, or kind of you can go and do it. And so like we're even starting to break down the barriers of some of these rate limiting factors in biology. And so in general, we just think that you have to be early. You have to have a uh, misunderstanding of time horizon based off of some form of optimism and some form of understanding when something has crossed the chasm. And I think we have this incredible system in the United States and broadly in big tech where like so much of research just gets pushed out for free and then people can adapt it. The biggest concern I would say that anyone should have is as we now have a lot of large for-profit or not-for-profit AI labs, um, we might see a closing down of research, which could slow some of that progress in like adjacent areas. Um, Meta, you know, thank thank God for Zuck is, is not doing that. Um, so we're very comfortable taking that risk. And I think where we often feel strongest is feeling that people are being overly pessimistic about time horizon.
1: Yeah. That's, um, that, that's really interesting. Is, is, is zooming back out in terms of how you think about venture, do you still think there's this big bifurcation between post product market fit investing and pre product market fit investing and everything kind of segmenting accordingly? Or how do you think about that?
2: I think it's like pre like single point of proof and post single point of proof investing. It's maybe how I'd frame it. The moment someone can point to any sort of uh, data point that can be extrapolated a hundred times, they have crossed the chasm into some form of universe of investors that can then understand that business better. And that's because they are able to build a frame of reference for themselves, the investors, and for their partnership, where ahead of that, it becomes a leap of faith that a lot of investors don't wanna make because that's how you look stupid, is you make a leap of faith and you're very wrong. (laughs) Um, which is, to be clear, unfair, but that's just like the dynamics of large firms with uh, very top-heavy firms, a lot of people, etc. Um, so I think there is that bifurcation. I will say, like my views on venture change every six months right now for anything post Series A because it feels like there is such an immense lack of consensus and lack of conviction and confidence in the entire venture capital investment base, um, and I think you feel that very, very precisely in the mid to late stage investors. And so I've never seen more people that are less confident in their views or are holding their views weaker than ever before. And I think it's why you see such insane flows of capital in any direction from climate to AI to crypto, back to AI, like all, all over, because it's kind of like we've entered into the, like, you don't get fired for picking IBM phase of venture. So, like you don't get fired for like eating $30 million into a 2 million ARR AI business. Um, and I think that's like incredibly negative for the industry, but um, maybe that'll shake out over the next few years as people start to have a little bit more of a baseline feeling of like, okay, we made it through this. This is what happened. This is what didn't happen, et cetera.
1: Yeah. That's a. Uh... That's really interesting. What's a seed firm to do Or uh, when you're advising your, your, your f- seed peers, your fund managers, um, you know, kind of in that sort of in between or, uh, you know, not a, you know, multi-stage firm. Wh- what advice are you giving them or emerging fund managers, et cetera?
2: My main advice is like stay small to the point where it makes sense and like figure out what is the thing that you are. Uh, I said, I tell this to founders too, which is make the decisions that if you fail, you can feel good about the decisions you made. and so. I think for venture, there's a long period of time where um even for compound, we didn't know if this whole thesis driven research centric thing was at all right. Um, it just was the way we knew we could do this job best. And we were willing to go down with the proverbial ship doing that. Um And so I think it's trying to figure out what that is. And I think it's like being really honest with yourself about what that is. And I think people want to, they want to be certain things in venture um when they're not. And like, I think to the point that we've talked about, you can make money a million different ways in this industry. And so I kind of say, try to figure that out and then focus on being really good at it. Like I say, like, I don't, I think compound, you could ask our LPs. I think we've proven we're good at this. I don't think we've, we're, we've proven we're great. And maybe someday we will, but like I have very minimal interest meaningfully expanding um, or having new hypotheses to test in firm building and venture until we have that one kind of like fully in marker checked. Um, so I think that's probably the main advice I give. And then obviously like, I don't know, right on the internet is probably the other one.
1: <laughs> to that point, let, let me segue off a, a different question, which is you have um, worked in the research business um, you know, with CB Insights, it's like kind of how you got your start. Um, but then you also think of your investment firm as a research organization, to tie back to how we started this call. And you monetize via investing. But you know, there are businesses like Tegas, let's just say, is a different kind of research organization um, that monetizes via selling to investors, um, such that some investors who don't, and certainly later stage or private equity or whatever, who don't subscribe feel like they're at a disadvantage. And that's something I'm exploring right now with with this business, um, uh, Turpentine. And I'm curious for your advice. Uh, if, if you were uh, less focused on investing and, and more wanted to, you know, build a research organization that would sell to, to investors. How, how, how would you think about it? Or where do you think is the, the opportunity or the, or the white space um, there?
2: I think I would probably go back to one of the things I said before on the like financial analysis side, which is how do you help people figure out like what their novel frameworks are? So I think you can do like two things, right? You have, what are the novel frameworks that people should be thinking about as they look at businesses and frameworks is like a general term that can mean a bunch of different things. Right. That's like metrics. That's from a quantitative perspective. Um, It can mean a bunch of other things like signals, uh, like data signals that people should understand that you create. Um, I think that. And then I think the other thing is uh, kind of to the other point, like giving people ideas. Like the idea factory is actually the best part about research. And when you're entirely unconstrained by anything but research, ideas are like, that's the best flow state you can be in because it is entirely about figuring out, um, what are unencumbered, what are, where would ideas come from and what are the most interesting things that people should be spending time on that they're not. And kind of my prior point, like, I would argue this is probably the best time in venture since maybe CB Insight started, which was, I think a decade ago, um, to be selling to people that are looking to figure out a bunch of stuff because, there's a little, a, lot, a very minimal amount of confidence and a lot of change happening. Um, and I think those two things just like enable you to build a brand moat. And once you build a brand moat, you have like so many other areas that you can start to experiment in. And I think for CB Insights, the thing that we realized is like the brand moat came from the tone at which we we wrote, the quality of the data. Like if we had a single, if we said like 32.2 million instead of you know, 31.2 million on a chart and someone emailed on end randomly because they're like, I've summed up these columns and it's actually 31.2, we would like immediately hear about it. And it was like, all hell had broken loose and we should never make that mistake again. Um, and so we got this kind of brand around being very precise. And I think that's why media started to cover us more and talk to us more for their quotes and um, more kind of serious, like private equity type investors and in M&A groups started to come to us. Uh, And then that enabled us to start to do analysis where prior to that, we were just some kind of random quote unquote people um, doing research on startups, but then people started to pay a lot of money for our analysis that was more opinionated and qualitative because they knew that like the rigor at which we had gone through on the other side. And so, yeah, I don't know. I think like, it's like an incredible time to build that business. I appreciate it. And you're you're the
1: poster child. Like I'm I'm trying to hire a bunch of analysts and uh, I want to tell them, Hey, this is Mike Dempsey path, you know, Mike Dempsey did it for a few years, uh, you know, earned his, uh, cut his chops or, you know, uh, earned his stripes, built a, a knowledge base, made, made that legible to the outside world. And, uh, you know, VC firms want to hire people who have expertise in certain domains or and, and networks in those domains, or maybe you can even be a emerging manager. So you're a, you're a success case for the type of people I'm trying to, I'm trying to hire you, you like, you know, 15 years ago, 10 years ago.
2: Yeah. I'll happily, happily, uh, uh, happily tell them tell them the story to, to sell them on, on your company anytime
1: amazing well well uh, gearing towards closing here uh you've given us uh quite a bit about what where you're excited how you've traced your evolution um say more about about compound today twenty twenty four for people who are looking to learn more whether it's whether it's founders or other people just looking to understand the the model and any upcoming plugs et cetera
2: yeah um I'd say for us like follow us on the internet we write a ton um, what we're most excited about is people who are taking science and engineering risk often um, or who have yeah, really novel ideas around areas. And we back companies at pre-seed, seed stage as their first investor, leading co-leading their rounds. Um, and I think the main thing that we continue to kind of focus on is as a partner to founders, like we care about being really high context on their space. They don't have to waste a bunch of time educating us um, and being Uh, really like along for the emotional journey. I always joked like part of venture is being equity compensated therapists. And that's kind of what we do, you know, 70, 80% of the time. And so, um, you know, always down to nerd out on on anything. And we have a thesis database. We post a bunch of stuff there of ideas we want to see exist in the world and come tell us why we're idiots and why we're wrong. And um, yeah, just excited to talk about all all these types of things uh, always.
1: Awesome. And if you as a listener want to hear more of Mike, I, uh, I'm trying to convince him to start a podcast because he loves talking to smart people, uh, about, uh, deep technical things. So, uh, I encourage you to peer pressure him as well. Uh, Mike, thank you so much for joining. It's been a great episode.
2: Really appreciate it. Thank you.
0: Turpentine VC is a podcast from Turpentine, the network behind Moment of Zen and Econ 102. If you like the episode, please leave a review in the Apple store or rate us on Spotify. Hey everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now.